0: Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2, and we will begin by reading verses 5 through 8. "'And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ.' As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ." Even though what we'll consider today is, in essence, verses 5 through 7, I included verse 8 in our reading today to communicate to you the reason that Paul issues this exhortation that we'll consider in a greater depth this morning. As we return to this epistle, Paul's epistle to the Colossian church, we consider this very practical lesson on the subject of growth. Now, growth is a subject that, depending on just the word itself, depending on the person that you ask or the person that hears it, might conjure or bring to mind various thoughts. There are some people that are rather curmudgeons when it comes to the subject of growth. And any time they hear the word growth from a pulpit, they begin thinking that a preacher's just chomping at the bit for more people in the pew, and as an extension of that, maybe more budget in the church. and and certainly maybe that could be the case from time to time. Sometimes, if you hear the word growth, you might think, you might anticipate a message on evangelism or sharing the Word of God in a community, and certainly that sharing the Word of God and evangelism ought to lead to growth in individual churches and communities. But today, we're going to consider growth from the perspective, not just growth for the sake of growth, not numerical growth, though if this type of growth occurs in a church, I think numerical growth will be on the way. We're going to consider growth as it relates to growing in knowledge as, number one, individuals, and two, as a church for the purpose of saving a congregation, a church culture in the middle of a city full of false doctrine, saving that particular congregation from the destruction that false teaching can and will bring when false teaching comes their way, comes along. Now, if you notice this, we'll just begin by observing what Paul eventually tells them. And I want this thought to be in mind as we consider today this exhortation to walk in Christ, to be rooted in Christ, and established in the faith. Paul says, "...as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith." Rooted and what? Built up. And so, as we introduce that word to you today, growth, we're going to be talking about solidifying our understanding and growing in our understanding for the important purpose of delivering yourself and, as an extension of that, this church body, from error. Because error is always destructive. A few thoughts on that up front. Now, verse 4 is one that You should remember, it's the verse that we ended with last time that we were together. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. So right before the language that we consider today, Paul gives the warning. We talked about it last week from the perspective of how we don't like warnings and we don't like to be told what to do as it relates to the speed limit or maybe wearing a seat belt or maybe taking medicine the doctor gives us or any sort of other thing like that because we're natural-born rebels, I want you to understand exactly how serious of a matter it is when Paul issues this warning. This is him saying, "'Beware because there are people in the world that could beguile you with enticing words.'" And we'll comment on those two terms in just a moment. But the example that we gave was if you see a sign that says, Beware of dog, you wouldn't think, I'm not going to let them tell me what to do. How dare they tell me to beware of the dog? No, he's telling you that because there's a vicious beast. And if you go past a certain barrier, maybe that vicious beast will latch a hold of your leg and put holes in your skin and holes in your clothes and bite you and chase you. I had to read power meters for a few years when I was in college and, excuse me, for a few months when I was in college and then I was a land surveyor for a few years. And between the two, I had my fair share of run-ins with dogs. One time somebody put a pit bull house under the power meter and in the pit bull house was a mama pit bull and several puppies. Now you can imagine what happened when little college-age Ben wanders up to read the power meter at that home. You, You can imagine real quick that she comes out of that Box and becomes livid and chases me and tries to kill me. And I won't tell you the rest of the story, but anyway, if you see a sign, beware of dog or bridge out, don't interpret that. You don't interpret that as, well, I don't like them telling me what to do. This doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. Interpret that as a warning that destructive behavior is that it's destructive. Paul warns lest any man should beguile this church with enticing words. Now, again, we'll eventually get to these two words, rooted and established in the faith. And so we're learning about growing in the faith, that is, the faith once delivered to the saints, the word of God, the truths that are to be believed. Strength in faith saves you from false teaching and false teachers. Strength in faith saves you from false teaching and false teachers, I don't know if you're aware of it, but the world is full of false teachers. Now, there's a lot of fellow Christians who hold to a different point of view than we do on a lot of issues, and that doesn't make them a a false teacher. A lot of them are doing the very best that they can with the information that they have. And as I was driving to church today, I was passing cars, and you can tell people are dressed up; they're going to church. It's the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and they're just ready to go to the house of God. And I just prayed, Lord, that they have a, a clean heart, a pure heart. They're going to God's, they're the best they have of God's house today. And though they don't agree with us on a lot of things, some of them may agree with us on very few things, in their mind, they are getting close to God and they want to experience a blessing from Him. And I don't look at people like that and think, these are just a bunch of false teachers. What in the world is the matter with them? heretics. Heretics, heretics. That's not the way that we should view other Christians. But there are so often false teachers in the world. And their motivation is not to serve the Lord to the best of their ability according to the best knowledge and understanding that they have at the time. Their intent is to make merchandise of God's people, to build power in the world for themselves. You look at the power that cult leaders have. And the U.S. has known some notable cult leaders. I mean, there's a reason that that metaphor, drink the Kool-Aid, exists when you want to describe someone who swallows some crazy idea and joins some cult movement. You know that comes from a guy, a cult leader, who had all of his followers drink poison Kool-Aid and die? You think nobody would do that, right? No, they do. People are very gullible, and if they believe that a man, a false teacher, is called of God... What sort of authority does that give that individual man in their lives? False teachers exist, and they do great damage to God's people. Strength in faith saves us from false teaching and from false teachers. Now, you notice these words here, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. The word beguile means to trick or deceive, and I think the greatest example of this word used in a Pauline epistle is when Paul says that Eve was beguiled by Satan in the Garden of Eden. Now, when Satan comes to Eve in the Garden of Eden, since Paul uses the word beguile, we know that Satan tricks her to eat. Now, Adam had no excuse. He knew better. Adam's the federal head over all his people. He's the head of his household, which at that time was just himself and Eve. He ought to have known better. He willingly chose to disobey God, but Eve, well, she was deceived. She was tricked. Eve was tricked of the wicked one. Oh, God knows that you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. So just take, this is a good thing. Now, God had given them a what? A warning. He said, beware, don't eat of this treat. It's the one thing you're not allowed to do. But Eve eats. She gives to Adam. Adam eats. And the whole story of sin in humanity began at that moment through the deception of Satan. To beguile is to trick, is to deceive. In other words, false teachers, some of them, the more notable ones in Christian history and this country, maybe you could point out things like prosperity gospel. They, They don't come to you and say, I really pretend to heal people. I keep the handicapped people, the truly handicapped people, on the other side of the auditorium if we let them in at all. And then I have my people go around with, with a, a microphone and talk to you and reveal to me what you're going through. And then I bring them on stage, and I know you're going to be so ecstatic and overwhelmed with adrenaline that I'm going to touch you in the head, and you're going to fall backwards, and, and we're going to make a lot of money off this, and it's not going to do you a bit of good, but it's going to do me a whole lot of good in my bank account. Did they come out and say that? Could you imagine how many people would go to the Von Braun or the BJCC or any other major auditorium and fill that auditorium by telling people, I'm really going to take your money, I really can't heal you, and the joke's on you, I laugh the whole way to the bank. Nobody says that. Nobody would show up. And yet that's exactly what these people do that belong to that particular faction. Some of them... Some of the the false teachers do this for power over people. Do you know how much power religion has yielded wicked men in the history of the world? It's just like politics, but greater. And there have been times in church history when religion and politics merged very devastatingly to the truth and the people of God because wicked men are attracted to power. What was the problem with the Pharisees in Matthew 23? They were wicked men who wanted the power, they used the power to afflict and to enslave, in a sense, God's people. And so they beguile, that is to say they deceive or they trick. Always be on the alert for men and women who would beguile you in a religious sense to trick you, to bring you under their control. Not only do they beguile them, but they entice them. And the word entice means to persuade. But if you think about it in your mind, to be enticed to us is so often synonymous with being tempted to do something that you shouldn't have done or that you shouldn't do. False teaching, then, is often enticing. If I was a man who was impoverished... And and there have been times as as a land surveyor with two kids making ten bucks an hour living in an apartment where you might have looked at me and thought I was impoverished. But we didn't know any different. It it was really, we had a good time. I think those were some of the happiest moments in in our life. But if I were a man who were impoverished, and this guy's preaching something that sounds like a gospel, but it teaches that because of the death of Christ... Well, God will give me just random deposits into my bank account and you know my financial problems will go away. I won't have any health problems. Imagine how enticing that is to a person who is impoverished. If you're a starving man and someone offers you the promise of a sandwich if you just follow this Jesus, you can imagine how persuasive that is as your stomach growls and you experience the pangs of hunger. And so these false teachers, they beguile and they entice. They beguile and entice. To remind you of the trouble that this particular church is dealing with, it wasn't some of the issues that we deal with in American Christianity. Two of the major issues in Colossae, in that city you have a cult of angel worshipers. Now, if you know the truth about Jesus Christ, as we have hammered on throughout this past chapter, you know that He alone is our Creator, that He is the second person of the Godhead. In Him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Chapter 2 and verse 9, we'll come to that in a moment. If you know that Jesus is the head of the church, He is the only one to be worshipped, what does that do? What does that truth do to angel worship? Well, it excludes it. You know, the old statement if you want to identify counterfeit bills, you don't have to study the millions of ways a counterfeit bill could be made. You just need to study the real thing. And in learning the real thing, anything not the real thing suddenly becomes very apparent to you. Paul, in laying the foundation to confront the angel worship, focuses on the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the. Second person of the Godhead, in Him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is Lord, He is head, He alone is to be worshipped. God alone is to be the object of our worship. Not angels, not cult leaders, not emperors, because in that day there was also a cult of Caesar worship. Not the Greek or Roman false gods, but Christ alone is to be the focus of our worship. At the same time, there was a group of people in this community that had taught taught asceticism. What is asceticism? Well, it's extreme self-denial that we see in Christianity as monasticism entered onto the scene, where men depart away from human life and live somehow alone in some sort of convent with other men. I, I don't know what all they do in those places. I know they abstain from a lot of lavish lifestyle. And uh, the funny thing in movies and media, you often see them brewing their own beer. And I don't know, you, it might just be a bunch of guys that got tired of everything and retreated away somewhere in the name of religion to drink beer and sing all day. I don't really know. But that seems to be these monasta, uh, you know, monastery-type guys, they, they go off and... It's this very rigid, touch-not, taste-not, handle-not sort of mentality. Verse 21, you see that when Paul begins to confront that. And we'll look at that in coming messages. But this church stands at risk, and Paul tells them the secret to not being beguiled and enticed with the false teaching is to strengthen their faith in Christ, to continue in what they've learned and to grow in it, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, solidifying this point to you, I want you to notice, as we read verses 5 through 7, what occurs directly before and after. This I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And that'll be the beginning verse that we consider next week. But we have, this I say, lest any should beguile you and entice you. Beware lest any man spoil you. Now the word spoil is commonly used in the Bible to refer to the incentive or benefit of conquering someone or something. To the victor goes the spoil that word often had reference to the gold and the silver and the slaves and everything else that you would get the land the cities the fields the vineyards when a military or a country would conquer another one what they took was the spoil and it's interesting that that's the word that's used here because that's exactly what false teachers do to God's people that's exactly what God's uh, what false teachers do to God's people now I want to be very clear before we go into these passages. I'm going to give you this caveat once again. This is the spoiling of God's people. We're not reading an exhortation here in the book of Colossians where Paul thinks this church is really full of unsaved people and he's doing all that he can to get them to really be saved so that they're not affected by false teaching so that they can go to heaven one day. Now, there are people who even claim to believe in the doctrines of grace who say things like that. And I just wonder, what, what about the doctrines of grace don't you understand? Because that P at the end of tulip means that every single person that was unconditionally elected and is a part of the limited atonement, the atonement limited to God's people, and irresistibly drawn by grace will be preserved and be with God in glory. And so anytime somebody says, well, you know, this false teaching is going to take somebody from God, and they believe the doctrines of grace, I just think, where is the disconnect in your brain? You love John 6.37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. That's very plain language. A five-year-old can understand that statement. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out unless he falls for a heresy. No, I will in no wise cast out, period. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him which sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. But raise it up again at the last day. Anybody claiming to believe the doctrines of grace that turns around and contradicts that passage doesn't really believe the doctrines of grace. What does Paul say in 2 Timothy 2? Now, if I said this recently here, I've said it so many places, I don't know where I said it. So if you've heard me say this recently, forgive me. If you haven't, well, here we go. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. Concerning the false teaching of a couple of heretics, Hymenaeus and Philetus, "...who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some." Not have overthrown, but overthrow. It's still happening. That's a present tense word. They overthrow the faith of some. "...nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His." Even if God's children fall to false teaching, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal. What is the seal? The Lord knows them that are His. Do I always know who belongs to Christ? No. Do you always know who belongs to Christ? No. But one thing's sure, God knows those that He elected before the foundation of the world. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit engaged in covenant before the world began to redeem these people. If God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all engage in covenant contract between the persons of the Godhead... This Godhead that is always unified, that is always one. There's no disagreement between the will of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There's complete harmony in the Godhead. And this Godhead covenanted before He created the universe to save you. There's no taking you from the hand of God. Even if you fall to a heresy. The word heresy means division. Heresy is divisive. But nothing can sever God's people from Him because Christ died for them. I should lose what? As many as fall to false off No, I should lose nothing. But raise it up again at the last day. Why? Because the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. The one, dare I use the word mind, and Scripture uses that word, who hath known the mind of the Lord, The one mind in existence that matters knows them that are His. Not me, not you, but God knows those that belong to Him. Now, moving past the groundwork, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit. Now, by the way, don't use that as an excuse to say, well, I'm not going to be at church today, but I'll be there with you in Spirit. I don't like preaching to spirits. Elder Ricky Harcrow said once, if we have ghosts start appearing in the room, I'm going to be out the door. It'd be like the disciples when Jesus walks up on the water and they think it's a spirit and they all begin to shriek in terror. That would be about the reaction. If spirits appeared today... Paul isn't saying that to say, well, you can be absent in body but present in spirit. He's just saying, look, the Spirit is telling me what goes on there, and I know through the Holy Spirit, even though I'm not with you in the flesh, I know that you have order and steadfastness in your faith in Christ. Now, what's going to deliver that church in Colossae from the false teaching of angel worship or asceticism? Well, it's going to be the order and steadfastness of their faith in Christ. And Paul says, Though I am absent in the flesh, I am with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order. That that thought, I'm going to pause and go off on a tangent here just a minute. You know, social media is inventing this metaverse stuff. And while I'm all about live streaming here, there's never going to come the day when Flint River has a VR service where we get together and we sit in our recliners and put on the little VR and suddenly we're all in church together and I get to give you a VR sermon, we're going to gather together in person. Now, if we have, you know, COVID 2023 or something and, you know, smallpox comes back or, you know, some worse thing, bubonic plague or Ebola, yeah, we might we might adjust some things for a little while, but please understand churches come together. And that doesn't mean put on a VR headset. Just trust me, trust me when I say that's going to be a thing, okay? And, and that's not going to be a thing here. It's not going to be a thing here. Anyway, absent in the flesh, present in the Spirit, and I joy and behold your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Now, by the way, this is an extraordinary compliment coming from Paul to this church. There are churches that he writes to, and think about Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's pretty brutal. Or to the Corinthians, ye are yet carnal. Somebody said there's no such thing as a carnal Christian, and I just want to know who stole 1 Corinthians from his Bible. Because Paul calls Christians carnal, even babes in Christ. What's a carnal Christian? A Christian that's not grown past spiritual infancy after God saved them. That exists. That's a thing. But to this church, oh, he tells them, "I, I joy as I behold your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. What's interesting about these two words, order and steadfastness, both of these are actually military terms which is interesting to think about, order is a military term, many times signifying the structure of rank or authority. The structure of rank or authority. And so if you had various ranks of people and they were all submissive one to the other the way that it's supposed to be, they obey their orders as it were, there's a respect for the chain of command. That word that would be used to denote that is the word order. And so where the word order translates from. So Paul uses this word in a church setting to refer to doing things the way that things ought to be done. There is an order in the house of God. We don't just do whatever we want to do and, oh, well, we meant well, it's okay. No, church is to be done in order. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 40, do all things decently and in order. Do all things decently and in order. Now, A disclaimer, to give you a a balance to that, sometimes people become so obsessed over what they call order that they become rigid and pharisaical and legalistic. And honestly, to be low church, that's what you call Baptist is is low church. You have high church, which is your Anglican, Catholic, Episcopalian, where there's a lot of uh, liturgy and structure and pre-written things, and we do the same ceremony over and over and over again. That's called high church. Baptists are a little more spontaneous. That's called low church because it's less rigid in its liturgy, though we do have a liturgy here. We go through it. We get here at 1030. We sing. We have prayer. We have Scripture reading and another prayer, and we have a hymn, and then we have a message, and then we have a closing hymn. That's liturgy. That's an order of service. But we're, we're low church. We're non-liturgical because as we as we sang, did you come in and and sing some songs that were pre prescribed for the third Sunday in November out of a out of a book? No, there was spontaneity. We called out hymns, I called out too. I rarely do. Rachel said, "Are you going to call out every hymn?" And I said, "No, unless I want to, and I'll try, but there were a couple of hymns I wanted to sing, and so I called them out. I don't do that often, I save them up and then I'm in a good mood and call it out and, you know, and sing some hymns. But because of the spontaneity, we're referred to as low church or non-liturgical, even though we do have, in a sense, our own liturgy. Sometimes people become so obsessed with what they call order that order and doing things orderly to them suddenly becomes do it the way that we've done it since 1950 or else. And that's not what I mean here when I talk about order. I don't think any of them are watching, because a lot of them don't like live streams anyway. But, you know, I don't want to offend anybody, but that's not order. Order is doing things the way that God prescribed in His Word. And as we think about rank, because part of order has to do with rank, who's in charge? Well, the Lord Jesus is in charge. He's the commander-in-chief. And so everything... That we do is to be in submission to Him. He is in charge. There are under shepherds, superintendents, as it were, that are in authority, but yet even then, they're not lords over God's heritage. They are to be the greatest servants in the house, and there is an order. Let there be order in God's house. What's the opposite of order? Disorder, disarray. Another word would be confusion. Confusion in the church is a very terrible thing. Confusion is what was happening in Corinth when you had people who spoke various languages in that multicultural port city between two major ports at an isthmus in the city of Corinth preaching multiple sermons at once, perhaps in different languages. Because Paul confronts that. Don't speak two or three people at a time. Speak one at a time. And when you speak one at a time, let it be in a language everybody knows. Could you imagine if we had 100 people in here today, one person in that corner given a Spanish sermon, one person here given an English sermon, one German, and then maybe over there we can put a Greek. And they're all given the same mess or you know, the, speaking at the same time through the same PA system. What sort of confusion that would be. Well, that was happening in Corinth. Something similar to that, which is Paul writes, which is why Paul writes about tongues, languages, and why Paul writes about speaking one at a time and no more than 3. That gives you an excuse if they put up four or five preachers at a meeting. You can say, you know, this is just not biblical and you can head out. You ever been to one of those meetings? It's like, we're going to try to preach you to death. And if you survive, you win some sort of a merit badge or something. Well, all things are lawful. Not all things are expedient. Paul says, don't preach more than three. But when he confronts that sort of thing in Corinth, he says, God is not the author of what? confusion in the churches. The opposite of order is confusion. The opposite of confusion is order. We want to have an orderly service where things are done in the right way. Order is one of the things that as they grow in it, it will deliver them from the dangers of the false teaching in their community. Steadfast is also a military term. Many believe its usage here is an intentional play on the word. This word was used to refer to a solid front of troops, steadfast, a solid front of troops. The word meant something solid and firm. And so if you have a concrete foundation, that's very steadfast. But it was used, again, in military context, much like this word order, What might Paul be saying to this church? You, church, are an orderly church. Things are done the right way. Authority is followed. People are submitting to the orders of our commander-in-chief, as it were. And you're presenting a strong front in the world. Have you ever thought about the church as a band of soldiers? We sing a hymn in our hymnal, and it describes us as a merry band of soldiers might be here in the vineyard, I I think. Here in the vineyard of my Lord, I love to live in labor. We're a merry band of soldiers. Soldiers for Christ. Paul would use that language as he talks about Timothy and Timothy's ministry, as he exhorts him and encourages him. There's a lot of similarities. There are a lot of similarities between serving in a sort of military as they would have in the Roman Empire in that day, and being a disciple of Christ. There's a warfare. If you didn't realize you're in a war zone, might I shake you a little and wake you up? Because if you turn on the news, or you turn on the radio, or you pick up the newspaper, or you scroll Twitter, which I would encourage you never to do, it's very obvious and apparent that you are in the midst of a warfare and the enemy is doing everything they can to attack you. By beguiling and enticing you with all sorts of wicked, sensual things, but at the same time, fighting against you and trying to drive you out of the public square for what you believe to be true about the Word of God, about our roles in society, about human sexuality, about marriage, about child raising, about creation, you name it. They are attacking what you believe. We're in a warfare. Soldiers have gear. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes about the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, your loins gird with truth, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, carrying a weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you do all digging your feet in to stand in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. You are a soldier in the army of Christ. And as Paul writes to this church, he describes them as presenting a solid front in their warfare in this world. I'm sure we've all seen scenes from movies of the way centurions in that day and maybe other Greco-Roman Militaries would carry their shields and their spears and present that elbow to elbow locked front. But that's exactly what he's talking about when he talks about this church. And he rejoices in it. This causes him to be glad. This church is strong. They realize their warfare. They're all together. They're arm to arm, shoulder to shoulder, with the shields of faith up, the sword drawn, and they're doing battle against the world around them. Now, do they do battle like they did in the Old Testament with some slings and some rocks and some swords and some spears? Where they go around physically harming other people that disagree with them? No. Again, this is a spiritual warfare And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is to say not physical. We war with information. We war with information. Might I exhort us as Flint River Primitive Baptist Church to lock shoulder to shoulder in a unified front against the wicked notions of this present day and age. Carrying the shield of faith out in front of us to quench the fiery darts of the wicked having that sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, in our hand, ready to do combat with the information contained in the Word of God to present a solid front, a strong front of troops. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. As you have received the Lord, I'm going to comment on that, The best place that I know to speak about what this word received and receiving the Lord, what this has to what this communicates to us is the book of John chapter 1. So you might turn to the book of John chapter 1 and notice in specifically verses 11 through 13. What does it mean as you have received him? Well, as we introduce that word to you today, people often in our day use the word accept. And they'll say, accept the Lord. I looked through the various translations of this epistle just for my own information and perhaps even entertainment last night. And one of all the Bibles that I looked in, and I looked in every single one that I could find online, translate, uh, translated this accept. Every other one... All the popular ones today, even some of the not-so-good ones today, use the word receive. KJV uses the word receive, which is our Bible of choice. People today use the word accept, and to me, I find that word too condescending to use concerning the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When you accept someone, you think about what that what that word brings with it as far as a connotation. You know, well, I, we accepted him. You know, that kind of means like he barely makes the cut, or you're reluctant, or maybe there are reasons you shouldn't have. The biblical word is receive. What does it mean to receive Christ? It means to embrace him as the Messiah as you hear the message. To embrace him as the Messiah. Now, giving you a very clear statement on the reception of Christ. Now, if you love the Lord Jesus, there was a time in your life when you heard the word and you said, you know what, I believe that. That was receiving him as it were. But I want you to look at John chapter 1 and verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Received him not. The word received. I want to focus on it. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And if you stop there, and you notice that word, that sentence does not end in a period. But if you stop there in your reading, you might think, Aha, preacher, we've finally done it. we finally cornered you. You sovereign grace preacher believing in tulip and the doctrines of grace. There you see it. Those that received Him, He gave them power to become the sons of God. So to become a son of God, you got to receive Him. Well, keep reading. Why did they receive Him? As many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on His name, which were born. Which were born. Those that received Him were born. What does He mean? Not of blood. This means that they're Descendants from Abraham or any other person, didn't matter. Not of the will of the flesh, meaning that they didn't choose to be born, nor of the will of man, themselves or another man. And again, remember this birth enabled the reception. What were they born of that enabled them to receive him when he came unto his own and his own received him not? Referring to the nation of Israel. They were born, look at the last clause in verse 13, of God. Those that received Him, received Him because they were born of God. Nine out of ten times, if not ten out of ten times, maybe 999 out of a thousand times on the radio when you hear that quoted, they leave off verse 13. Because verse 13 tells you why they received Him. If you've received Christ, if you believe on Him, when you hear His Word, it's because you were born of God. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You weren't born into it through natural birth. You didn't choose your way into it because it's not of the will of the flesh. Before the new birth, you only have the flesh. And it will never will to follow Christ because the gospel is foolish to a natural man. And it's not by the will of man. If I could will people into spiritual life, we'd have 5,000 people here today. Because if I could will them into that, I could will them into showing up. <laughs> There'd be a lot of people here today. We'd have to build a coliseum. Those that received Him, received Him because they were born of God. Now who is the Him or the He there? The Word, which was made flesh and dwelt among us, the same Word that was with God in the beginning, was God in the beginning, and with God in the beginning, who made all things, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Those that were His own, the nation of Israel, didn't receive Him, but those that were born of Him received Him. Now let's look at this phrase, To them gave He power to become the sons of God. In the new birth, they were given... Great power was expended upon them, divine life-giving power, quickening them as sons. But I think John has a different meaning here. As many as received him, gave he power to become the sons of God. The word power could also translate authority. Authority. And authority and power are synonyms. He came unto the people that were supposed to be God's people the nation of Israel. Did the nation of Israel receive him as the king, the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, and worship him? No, they rejected him. What happens after the nation of Israel rejects him? They're cut off from the corporate blessings of God. Who then is given the corporate blessings of God in the world? Those that worship him, which, unlike... The entirety of human history up until that point were Gentiles. Now, this, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, I believe is communicating to us that those that should have been followers rejected him, even though they were perceived to be God's people. And people who were not perceived to be God's people had been born of him, received him, and they enter onto the stage of human events, as the real people of God. They're given the authority to be, in our minds and understanding, the sons of God in the world. If you think about who are the people of God today, do you think? Well, the nation of Israel. That's not what you think. What do you think? Well, the people that love Him and know Him and worship Him and follow Him. Because to them are given the authority, as it were, to be, in this world, the sons of God. We identify them as sons. They manifest their sonship. Why do they receive Him again? They receive Him because they were born of God. Back to Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. As you receive Him, what do you do? Walk in Him. Receive Him Walk in Him. Basically, continue your walk in Christ. Continue following the teaching of the real Jesus. Continue following the teaching of the real Jesus, the real Christ, the real Messiah, the real Savior, the real deity, the real divinity, the real God. Continue as you have started. Verses 6 and 7, we'll read together. As you've therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Now, I consider it a matter of divine providence that the last word that we'll consider today in our message to you on the Sunday before Thanksgiving is the word thanksgiving. I always love it, as the A team says, when a plan comes together. Most of you are too young to get that reference, but. It's always amazing to me when you randomly start in your mind a series and it just kind of works out to where you get to a crucial point of it at a significant point in time that seems to mirror and parallel what's going on in the world. As you've received him, walk in him, rooted and built up in him. The word Paul uses here for rooted literally has reference to, wait for it, Roots. In fact, the word that was the root of the word he used comes into the English language as rhizome. I, I read the word last night. I'm like, I bet that's the root of the English word, the origin, rather, of the English word for rhizome. And I look it up, and sure enough, it is. It is. Paul literally uses the word for roots. Roots literally uses the word for roots. Now, we might say we want to be rooted in truth and grounded in truth, but those are metaphors. And immediately our mind interprets that as I've got deep understanding of truth, but that's based upon something practical in the world. Rooted and built up in him literally means that you, like a plant, have put deep roots in him and in his truth and in his word. Rooted and built up. In him. Which way do roots grow? They grow down and they grow out. And then you look at this next phrase, and built up in him. If something is built up, which way does it grow? It grows up. And so in this verse, you have both the growth which goes down and the growth which grows up. Now, as it relates to personal growth, as it relates to church growth, I love to emphasize that there are seasons of growth that a church doesn't witness on the outside that I call root growth. I think one of the best years that we had here was 2014. 2014, we didn't have a single baptism, and we've had several this year. We've had top growth this year. Last year, we didn't have a single baptism, if I remember right, because we were kind of dealing with a global pandemic, and I was just thankful when people were here. In seasons of root growth, the church digs its roots down into the soil of God's Word. It pulls in the nutrients. It pulls in the information, and it strengthens itself against a storm. The, tree of a, the health of a tree so often depends on its root system. An example of that we'll all get. It wasn't but a few, a few weeks ago... A couple of weeks ago, that something very tragic happened here on our facility. We had to have our hundred year old tree cut down. Now, if you're one of those people that doesn't notice things and you didn't know that, Lord bless your heart. But more than likely, when we pulled in the parking lot, we noticed the giant pile of mulch and the great missing green tree out there. Now, we're not Ashtaroth worshipers. We don't worship in the groves, and our spirituality here doesn't depend on tree. But we were sad to see it go. It's iconic, as it were, and so much so that we use it in the logo on the live stream and in social media. That tree, if you noticed, was sick at the very top. You know what I learned from the tree inspector that came out first to look at it? If you see sickness in the top of the tree, it's usually the roots. And he said it's like a carnival game. When you hit the the little meter and the, the thing goes all the way to the top, when you've got sickness in the roots, in the bottom it manifests itself quickest in the top. Well, it makes sense because the top of the tree is furthest from the roots. When we cut that tree down, it wasn't hollow. It wasn't rotted out on the inside, though most of the top of it was dead. Where was the sickness? It was in the roots. Never underestimate the seasons of root growth in your life or in this church. We need root growth. A tree that large, if we had a strong wind to blow... And that tree had the root system of a Bradford pear. What do you think would have happened to that tree? It wouldn't have made it 80 years. It wouldn't have made it 10 years. I would venture to say that the root system of that tree extended just as far through the soil widthways as the top of that tree. It put in roots, and the roots help it survive the storms. Churches grow through, go through seasons of root growth that are just as important as the outward growth that everyone sees and rejoices in. We love it when we have baptisms here, but you know what? If, if little kids are learning more about Jesus and adults have closer marriages and people are reading their Bibles more than they ever have, but nobody joins the church that year, I still rejoice because I know they're strengthening themselves and unless something terrible happens, a church in that position is setting itself up for the outward growth. While at the same time, you can have a very visible, quick-growing outward tree that doesn't have the depth of roots. And one of the examples of the parable of the sower was just that. Seed that lands in soil among the rocks and there's not much depth, and so it springs up quickly, but the sun scorches it because it has no root. And it withers and it doesn't bring forth fruit. Root growth is important, which is why Paul uses the word rooted up and built up in him, established, In the faith. This word established means stabilized. You want to be stable in your faith. What might be the opposite of being established in the faith? There's another biblical expression I want to remind you of tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. If I am bouncing back and forth from alternate, even opposing viewpoints on passages or subjects, that concern Christians, I ought to be concerned because more than likely I'm being tossed to and fro. There's something to be said for consistency. Now, you don't want to be consistently wrong. That would also be bad. But we also don't want to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therewith, with thanksgiving. Now, just a note on the benefit of being rooted in strength in what you've been taught. You notice Paul here, in the faith as you've been taught, he doesn't say that the solution to the problem in their culture is novelty. Sometimes, maybe opposing those who are really hard on order doing things the way they were done in 1950, will go to the opposite extreme as they break off from that to invention invention and novelty and things such as that. And so you'll see, well, you know, maybe we could invent this practice or that practice, or we can change the name and we can rebrand. Paul doesn't say novelty is the solution to church problems, does he? Novelty is not the fix. Novelty is the problem. The fix is to grow more in what God's Word teaches. The fix is to grow in the information you already have. When the church at Corinth was at risk of the doctrine of non-resurrectionism, in other words, there's no resurrection, do you know what Paul said the remedy is for that church? Brethren, I declare the gospel unto you which you've heard, which we've preached, by which ye are saved if you keep in memory that Christ died, that He was buried, that He rose again according to the Scriptures. That church would be delivered from a heresy through simply remembering the gospel. What is the gospel? Death, burial, and resurrection. What was their heresy? Non-resurrectionism. Simply remember the gospel. The gospel is the medicine that cures the sickness in the church. When... Philippi was divided, and Paul told them, work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. That's referencing the division there at Philippi. You know, the solution was to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who took him upon the form of a servant, made himself of what? No reputation. The solution to the trouble in Philippi was something they already knew. We've got everything we ever need in the Word of God in front of us. And as this church confronts the culture around them and the heresy trying to get its open door in their congregation, deliverance from that was simply growing in what they knew true, what they've been taught from the beginning, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Now, the last point that we make today, while soundness in the faith often brings the stereotype of cold, stoic, rigid demeanor... Isn't that kind of the the stereotype? The uh, church curmudgeon Twitter page might be a good one to to see that played on for satire and comedy. it has got this grumpy old guy wearing a fedora, and he's just got this look like, well, it's the look I've seen a lot of PBs make anyway. <laughs> Soundness in the faith often brings this stereotype of cold, stoic, rigidness, but I want you to understand that knowing the truth in Christ should bring joy and thanksgiving. People who understand the truth of grace and their order and their steadfastness as it ought to be ought to be the most joyful people in the world abounding in the thanksgiving that they experience in their heart, understanding what God has done for them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this this needful instruction in our day and age, we know, Lord, that novelty is not the solution. We know, Lord, that as we see in these next passages, that the traditions of men are not the solution, but the solution to any problem we have is simply going back to what the Word of God teaches. And so, Lord, help us to understand and to know this gospel and this Word as those that have received Your Son and are trying to walk in Him. And, Lord, we pray that that whatever the case may be, that we might experience individually or collectively, that you would give us your word on that subject, help us know what your word says about that subject, that we would not fall victim, as threatened the Colossians, to the various false notions that exist, and the false teachers that do labor in our day and age. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. We pray that we would all enjoy a good Thanksgiving week with family and friends as As we have opportunity, we pray, Lord, that this would be a special time in which we understand and are thankful for your many blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.